Hello and welcome to the Auto Buyer's Guide podcast powered by Alex on Autos. I'm Tim, he's Alex. Let's jump right in. Polestar 3, the third vehicle from Polestar, their first SUV. Yes. About two weeks away, what are we expecting? We're expecting a electric alternative to a Porsche SUV, basically, which is uh, a really interesting twist, actually, I have to say, and definitely a divergence from Volvo's product planning. Uh, I guess this is probably the first product that's really going to show us what Polestar can be and how Polestar might be separate from the Volvo empire, I guess, because Volvo's mission is compete with BMW, Mercedes, and Audi in the mainstream segments and in the lower and entry level and uh, you know options in those segments. And this is going after Porsche with a $75,000 starting price tag is what everybody's assuming. And uh, what are they saying, over 600 horsepower or did I get that wrong? No, no, you're you're definitely in the right ballpark. We're gonna have six hundred and seventy-one pounds. Six seventy. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Five hundred and ten horsepower. There we go. Yep. So definitely pretty peppy, and that's a starting point for them because they keep ratcheting the Polestar two up. Uh, it is interesting. I don't know if you're intrigued by this too, but we've seen Polestar two, obviously. We've seen Polestar three, and we've seen Polestar five. We haven't seen Polestar four. I am scratching my head about that. I, I will admit. And I am also intrigued that the numbers bear like the Ionic family, they bear no meaning as to the format of the vehicle. So you say Polestar 3 doesn't mean you automatically think crossover or SUV. I think a lot of people are confused because if you haven't seen it in person, you could easily mistake the Polestar 2 for some sort of mild crossover. They don't view it as mm -hmm. that. Right. And it is, I always thought that they, that was a missed opportunity to not call it some sort of crossover coupe thing because it has about the same ground clearance as xc40 and uh i mean it's it is basically an electric xc40 so they could very easily have claimed that and i think the reason they didn't is that europe and china doesn't care and those are the primary market for polestar 2. Also interesting is that there's a little bit of confusion about the range for the dual motor version. Uh, for the most part, these crossover SUVs that come out with EV propulsion, you get the most range out of some sort of two-wheel drive variant. But there's been talk yes. of 372 miles from a dual motor variant, which would be extraordinary given the price. Yes, we don't know whether that's WLTP range or EPA range for one, though. Yes. We also don't know any battery details, so I wouldn't be surprised if that's the model with the biggest battery and therefore gets the, the longest range. That's something we've seen in other manufacturers before. Um, this is certainly hallmarking or, or highlighting what we, what we should see in the EX90 coming up very, very soon from Volvo because they're going to be built in the same factory in the United States and they're going to be very closely related. So the Volvo is going to be the more practical, safety first, family friendly, three row electric and hybrid thing. And then we're going to get this Polestar 3 that's going to be all electric and much more performance focused. It's a really fascinating vehicle if they can bring the price in at a competitive level. Because in general, once you start increasing the size of the battery, you are increasing the single mm -hmm. most expensive component of an EV. Um, which is why Faraday Futures FF91 range recently exploded to 381, but they also started specking a much yes. larger battery and potentially higher prices. So mm -hmm. if they can hold this to under $85,000 with a 372-mile range and dual motors, whether it's a performance variant or not, if it's two motors and it's that high and priced right, it's going to be an incredible product. I'm going to go ahead and guess that that dual motor long range one is going to be way more expensive than that. That's just my guess. Obviously, we don't have any pricing guidance uh, because the rumor mill has been saying that this is the first Polestar that's going to go into six figures, most likely. Okay. Well, if that's the case, then there's no way you're getting away with murder because that would have been an incredible pricing breakthrough. Yes. And remember, although they have built previous vehicles in China, this one is being made in the United States, so they don't have super low labor costs on this. Right. And that the target is a little different than Polestar 2, which is an entry-level EV designed for a BMW 3 Series or Mercedes-Benz C-Class customer that wants to look at an electric alternative to Tesla. And this is going to be an alternative to the upcoming EQS, EQE SUV 
Mercedes numbers are getting in my head here. The BMW iX, especially the high horsepower version of the iX, which is quite expensive. And then of course the Porsche lineup as well. Uh, so it is quite interesting that they're not going in the same direction, say that Audi is with the Q4 e-tron, which is quite inexpensive and it's based off of a Volkswagen. It's also gonna be fairly slow as far as zero to 60 times go. Um, so Polestar seems to be going in a different direction, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw options from Volvo that were more like what we see from uh, the mainstream luxury entries. You know, Porsche is definitely in a slightly different price category. It's that notch above the, the average European luxury vehicle, and you pay that premium for it. And I think that's what Polestar is allowing them to do. And the uh, the Volvo will be more of a mainstream, more more a quote-unquote affordable. you got to get the air quotes in there for the video um, because the EX90 is not going to be cheap. Uh, it's going, it is going to be fairly expensive too, but it will probably be less. And approximately how big is the Polestar 3 going to be? Because when people hear Porsche, they don't mm -hmm. know whether we're talking about Cayenne or McCann, and there is a pretty big size difference between them. Yeah, it looks like it's going to be more Cayenne than, than McCann. Details are obviously not available yet, but it is going to be a two-row. Rumor says it's going to be a mid-sized two-row, so think X5, BMW iX, Cayenne, etc., not XC60. And that makes sense because it's it's going to be the first relation to the XC90 uh, reboot. And there will be a lot uh, of yeah. interesting content for people who want a driving experience, although it's all-wheel drive. And, mm -hmm. and it will be balanced as though it were a rear-drive vehicle, and it will also have torque vectoring capability. Yes, and mechanical torque vectoring, which is an interesting twist. So it's going to use a dual-clutch style rear differential to torque vector across the rear axle, and it's going to have a more powerful electric motor in the rear than in the front. And this is also something a little bit different than we've seen out of, out of Polestar so far, mind you. Uh, the Polestar 2 has actually had a symmetric motor layout, so about 200 horsepower in the rear, about 200 up front. It definitely biased power to the rear unless you floored it, and then it would be this balanced thing. And that is definitely a, a, a twist with EVs that we've seen so far is that high horsepower EVs, they're not balanced that way. So you deliberately have this, this rear power bias that people enjoy. I'm gonna be intrigued to see if Polestar can do anything about the torque steer up front, because this is a weird thing that, uh, that popped into my mind this last week. It's, my, the question in my head is, are we going to forget about driving dynamics and burn it on the altar of quick zero to 60 times? Because every high horsepower EV that I've ever driven, except for the Rivian, oddly enough, has a massive torque steer problem because there's just no way to have that much power up front without torque steer. Um, BMW iX, the, the, you know, the, uh, the i4, M50, etc., the Model S Plaid, lots of torque steer in all of these vehicles. And I think the only reason that Rivian doesn't is because they have that quad motor setup. So it kind of makes me wonder if we're going to see performance EVs that are going to try and solve that by, by either using some sort of limited slip functionality up front, or are we going to get dual motors? Yeah, it is very confusing because with the advent of super high-powered all-wheel drive EVs, we hear people talking about the front and the back doing different things. When you have a high-powered mm -hmm. front-wheel drive car, like, say, the Cadillacs of the 90s, the early 2000s, you get the sense that the front has a mind of its own. But now that all the wheels are driven, the back also has a mind of its own. And it's like two mm -hmm. different vehicles trying to do two different things. And I hear that most often when people talk about the F-150 Lightning. Yeah, the Lightning has a little bit of that going on. I mean, it's it's the only truck with torque steer, for sure, uh, other than the limited number of front-wheel drive uh, Hondas that you find out there. But the reason is the same, the same reason that we find torque steer in the BMWs, the Mercedes, the the Teslas that are, that are dual-motor setups is because we don't have a mechanical connection to the rear. Generally speaking, in all-wheel drive vehicles, even if it's a front-biased all-wheel drive system like a high-horsepower Volvo that's that's uh, front-wheel drive based, that's a good example, I think, because obviously Volvo, electric Volvos have this problem as well, uh, they have a mechanical connection to the rear that they can close, and then they can also overdrive the rear axle just a little bit, and that causes the rear wheels to sort of push the fronts, and that really alleviates that torque steer feeling for the most part. It can still be there. But when you have this disconnection, you end up feeling like a Volvo plug-in hybrid or a Volvo EV where the front's doing its thing and the rear end's doing its thing. Um, and it is gonna require a bit of, um, bit of getting used to. 
Now, in terms of technology that is not purely propulsion-based, they're talking about NVIDIA artificial intelligence hardware, and they're talking about LIDAR being involved. And I'm curious as to the implementation of either of these, but at least some of it is going to be used to physically monitor the driver during the mm -hmm. drop. Yes, and so the, and this is specifically to the EXC90, um, which I guess maybe the E is going to be silent and it's just going to be XC90. I don't know. Who knows? At any rate, um, Volvo is really narrowing on their mission of nobody being killed or seriously injured to Volvo by, I think it was like 2030. That's their mission. So part of the way they're going to want to get there is using more intelligent active safety systems. And this is an, I'm going to be really intrigued to see how they behave because up until this point, Volvo's active safety systems have been less interactive than, say, Acura's. So if you're driving your Acura aggressively in traffic, collision mitigating braking is going to intervene a lot earlier than the Volvo system. The Volvo system kind of waits till everything's gone wrong, and then it attempts to mitigate that, that disaster at the very, very end. Um, whereas with the Acura system, it's going to brake super hard. If you're trying to weave in and out of traffic, you need to turn it off because it will just be brake checking people behind you. And this may be the beginning of a new era for Volvo in those safety systems as a result, or it could be that they're simply trying to change the way the system behaves depending on how the driver is, is interacting with the road. And that seems to be kind of their mission. If the driver's not paying attention, the system's going to be have, behave differently than if the driver is paying attention and seems to be I'm willfully doing something, I guess. It does make me ask the question, so if I'm just aiming for the telephone pole uh, and I'm in control and I'm aiming for the telephone pole, does it think that's okay? Lots of questions to be answered, especially with implementation. It's become harder and harder for Volvo to differentiate itself in recent years because so many technologies are now either government mandated mm -hmm. or customary in the luxury price point where, where Volvo now plays. It's really hard to have that first by far safety reputation that Volvo had in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. This is one way to set themselves apart, but there's always the question, how much do yeah. you want your vehicle to intervene in the drive? And of course, I mean, Volvo continues their leadership with passive safety systems as well. Uh, Volvo and Mercedes are generally the, the two safest vehicles intrinsically, seemingly, on the road. Um, they're also the two car companies that tend to pass new government safety tests and safety checks and, and requirements without modifying the vehicle. You know, there's a new side impact test and Volvo and Mercedes go, eh, it's fine. It'll pass it. Didn't, didn't need it anyway. Um, so I'm going to be intrigued to see what else they have. The LiDAR addition is a really intriguing uh, twist here because a lot of autonomy research has gone into this and a lot of independent autonomy uh, researchers have long said that LiDAR is a necessary step towards the level of autonomy that Tesla has been seeking. Only Tesla does not want to do it with radar and LiDAR and cameras. They just want to do it with cameras. And we've seen how that's turned out with some of their, their lawsuits, I guess you'd say. Um, Volvo is using this, this sensor fusion approach where you can use an optical camera to see what the object is. You use radar to tell how fast it's going in relation to the vehicle. And then LiDAR is more of a positioning and 3D mapping thing. So you can kind of tell this blob is doing something. The camera goes, oh, the blob is a deer. And the radar knows where it's going and how fast it's going in relation to the car. Um, <clears throat> But LiDAR is definitely going to be essential for things, especially that are coming across the path of the vehicle and interacting in lane line situations so you can get a better idea of what's going on. So now moving from a vehicle that will overtly pitch safety alongside performance, we have a vehicle that will pitch ugliness alongside <laughs> performance in the 2023 BMW XM. Now, I don't I, think it looks that bad. <laughs> do, how how do you think it looks with the night gold metallic trim? I I wouldn't get the gold metallic trim. That's just me. I don't live in the 1980s, but I wouldn't do it. But, you know, maybe someone would. This seems like something an aftermarket Cadillac accessories king would have on like a 1977 Eldorado gold trim dripping from every seam i mean if you have a if you have a, a gucci handbag or whatever the fancy handbag is right now and it's got the gold hardware wouldn't you want your car to match i guess but let's just be honest <laughs> the style of this vehicle is challenging 
Judge Dredd does not fully describe it, but let's at least give them a chance. They're describing this as the first purpose-built M vehicle since the M1, which I don't buy because it has the same wheelbase and overall length as the X7. There's no way yeah, these things are Yeah, that's true. It's true. But it's going to be fast. It's going to have a bare minimum of, I mean, it's going to be like 644 horsepower and 590 pound-feet of torque. But if you get the label red variant, which is going to be a limited edition version, mm -hmm. and again, this is made in South Carolina, just like the Volvo, so they're coming from the same place, you can get 725 horsepower and 735 pound-feet of torque in this X7-sized vehicle. And I'm intrigued that they went X7-sized. For a purpose-built M vehicle, I would have I, I would have thought maybe we're going to be M5-sized, but no, apparently not. <laughs> well, here's the other thing, too. It's going to be two-row exclusive, from what I understand. They're not mm -hmm. going to make a three-row version of this. So it's right. two rows, your luggage, and you're done. I suppose, in a way, it makes sense, because Range Rovers are pretty expensive. They're pretty big, but they've had two rows. Now we finally have a three-row Range Rover, so that exists. But there's definitely a market for that. I and mean, we have Bentley and Rolls-Royce in this big two-row SUV, whatever it is we're going to call these things. So I'm really intrigued to see how that goes. And it really does show that BMW is chasing what people want and people don't really seem to want performance sedans. Well, the other weird thing about this is that it's really heavy and they went plug-in yeah. hybrid. So you're gonna get 30 miles of all electric range. Now, the only way I can possibly explain this is that this has something to do with European city center regulations. And this is the only way you're gonna be able to get your you know, apartment block size performance SUV into and out of London if you're a stockbroker in the financial district. For sure. But the result is a 6,000 pound vehicle, which mm -hmm. is probably about seven to 800 pounds heavier than it needs to be without those PHEV features. I can't imagine anyone's going green by buying this. So why add those features at all? Right. And you, you can't help but think resurrecting the i8 and just having that be the dedicated m car that could have been a thing right that, that could have worked somehow would have been a lot lighter but the truth is that people want msuvs that's that's the thing they sell incredibly well so it is strangely logical in that respect yeah well you will get your msuv with dripping gold 23 inch wheels which i'm sure are great for overall efficiency and you will pay a lot of money for it. This is not going to be cheap. Well, it's not quite into Lamborghini Urus territory. Remember, the Urus is that vehicle you buy if you want the performance SUV between two hundred and two hundred and sixty thousand dollars. This is going to be between about one sixty and one ninety, with a very real possibility that certain options will get you all the way to the two hundred thousand dollar price point. And there's some serious heavy metal at that price point. I guess you really have to be set on the look and attitude of this truck. Because you've got options in that price range, and they're sure. incredible. It's a it's a relative value. <laughs> uh, an AMG version of the GLS is, for instance, more expensive, or can be, depending on what you do to it. So I uh, I, I can kind of see it. Let me check out what a Cayenne Turbo GT costs, because we're not far from it. That has a base price, and you know, fair warning: Porsche base prices subject to change especially with options, but that has a base price of under 190. So we're not all that far from the ultimate Cayenne, which I've yep. got to assume is going to be dynamically superior to the 6,000 pound brick in every single way. So you've got to love the way it looks and specifically want this because the alternatives are amazing. Yeah, but of course, if you live in a, uh, a high tax disc zone, if you're in London and sure. uh, you can't go through that area in your Porsche, then you buy this because it can go into the city center. Yeah, and there will be options to customize it inside and outside. The trim is supposed to be absolutely gorgeous, dripping with high-end leather, Alcantara, technical materials. If you want, they will, I, I guess, give you extra top speed with the M package. <laughs> You can go 168 miles an hour on the Autobahn before EVing it through the city center in Stuttgart. You know, show up those Mercedes boys and all. This is a weird vehicle for me. I don't get BMW's current truck design language, so I'm just not the target buyer for this. Um, but I have no doubt that if you just want an SUV that is EV fast and like BMW bad, this thing is both of those. It's a badass looking mm -hmm. truck. This is for the guy who would buy a dually, but doesn't need that much size or space. 
Uh, this is for the person who maybe in a previous generation would have gotten like the S65 AMG or and you're just looking for the ultimate of something. You've added every option and just the XM is one more than an X5 or an X6. Pretty much. That's yeah, that's basically it. I think, okay. it, you know, an X6 might almost have been a better platform to derive your your uh, exclusive M from. But hey, it, what do I know? <laughs> this is also for the guy who maybe has Rolls-Royce Cullinan aspirations, but not Cullinan budget. It is just yeah. as brash and unapologetic about the way it looks. It's just cheaper. Or you've got a Phantom for weekends, and this is your daily driver. That makes sense. Okay, so that this is the beater. Yeah, could be. Fair enough. Or it could be, or it could be for being driven in in the back. You know, maybe you have the help drive you to the office every day. Your chauffeur-driven <laughs> 725 horsepower PHEV SUV. Got to get there fast. I am so confused by this vehicle. I'm not confused by the next one, though, and this thing has been surprisingly popular. I never saw the appeal of the first-generation Outlander plug-in hybrid, but people swore by them, and Mitsubishi apparently sold 300,000 worldwide, which boggles my mind. They did. I think it's because there were no good options at the time. Um, I honestly have had troubles with the Outlander plug-in hybrid, and I don't know if they've been solved with this drivetrain. Mind you, I haven't driven it yet. We've asked for one. Who knows when we're going to get one here. Uh, the current generation Outlander is, of course, a Nissan Rogue with a Mitsubishi interior and a Mitsubishi logo because mm -hmm. Nissan now owns them. But uh, the Outlander plug-in hybrid is a variant of the previous generation Outlander plug-in hybrid system, not a Nissan plug-in hybrid system. Don't ask me why, because there is supposedly a new Nissan plug-in hybrid system coming for some international markets, just apparently not the U.S., who knows for sure. Uh, at any rate, so the big deal with this is that it's a serial hybrid system primarily. The design of it is pretty similar to Honda's hybrid system, so it is not capable of running the vehicle on engine power alone below about 45 or 50 miles an hour. Again, some details are sketchy on this generation. Um, and so at those lower speeds, it's a serial hybrid system. So after the battery has been depleted, the fuel economy is not overly good because that's just not the most efficient way to do a hybrid. Uh, you, you want the engine to be powering the wheels mechanically directly and then be aided by the electric motors. That's the most efficient way. It's not really that efficient to generate power, move it along to the other electric motor, and then drive that electric motor. Just ask BMW's i3 with the range extender, which also was not terribly efficient. Um, now, in this generation, they have made the motors more powerful, they have made it significantly more attractive, and they've kept in a teeny tiny little third row. So if you want something that has a plug and has a third row, this is going to be one of the few options. You could look at something like the current generation XC90, it's going to be a lot more. Or you could look at a Kia Sorento, which is probably going to be similarly priced, but have a much more functional back seat because the Sorento is bigger. Without a doubt, the third row is nominal here, although it is based mm -hmm. on the new Rogue platform. The Rogue does not have a third row seat, so the third row seat is part of the unique pitch. Uh, the Nissan Renault Alliance moved in in 2016, took up its controlling stake in Mitsubishi, so that's where this comes in. What Alex mentioned, which is a little bit odd, is that although the standard Outlander does have a Nissan power plant, the PHEV comes back with a previously existing Atkinson cycle 2.4 liter gas engine uh, that was in the previous generation of the plug-in Outlander. That returns here. It's a lot stouter than if you buy this vehicle just with the Nissan engine. You do get four, 248 horsepower versus I think like 181 yeah. or so. Mm -hmm. 332 pound-feet of torque. So if you want to go faster, this is your option. But it's, a reasonable amount of weight, for also, sure. Yes. And the one, the one thing I will say is that, that Nissan or Mitsubishi uh, they measure their power output figures like Honda does. So maximum system horsepower is not maximum power that can be applied to the wheels. Theoretically, there's a point where you can send power mechanically along uh, the, the clutch pack up front and also be pulling power from the battery. That is theoretically when you would get that peak horsepower, but those speeds are not legally achievable in the United States because that that curve is so impossibly high. It's just like with Honda's uh, hybrid systems. Uh, they say they're 212 horsepower. They're really just 180 horsepower because you cannot get 212 total out of the system at any legal speeds in the United States. It actually is more like 120 miles an hour is 
theoretically where that could happen if it wasn't artificially limited to below that speed. That's true. This one's going to be mostly about the torque, having a mm -hmm. little bit more give off the line than you'll get with the standard Nissan. The other thing I think is the Nissan is paired to a CVT. So. Yes. Yes. And this is going to feel kind of like a CVT because it's basically going to be an electric vehicle below, uh, you know, 45 to 50 miles an hour. And then above that, it's going to feel kind of like a CVT now and then. So it's it definitely has a unique feel. It also is going to be the only plug-in hybrid in the U.S. with a DC fast charge connector. Chatamo, unfortunately. Yes, which is another weird twist. And I think that's because of its primary market, which is Japan. Um, in Japan, the Outlander plug-in hybrid is a fairly expensive, fairly large family people mover thing. In America, it is a funky, small-ish thing with a emergency use third row. Just the positioning of the vehicle is quite different in this market. Um, but they did not want to change the structure of it and the software for America that much. So the, the hardware uh, and software for charging, they just decided to leave as, as Chatamo here. And Chatamo is unfortunately dying. Nobody else supports it. Even Nissan is running away from it in North America. The, the new Aria is going to be CCS. Uh, the Leaf will stop sale at some point in time. And it does not appear that we have any ongoing support uh, named from large charge uh, companies. So Electrify America has said, yes, we'll continue to have you know some sort of CCS to, to Chatamo thing or a Chatamo standalone charger, but maybe just one hidden in the back of the parking lot. It's really cool to think that it has 50 kilowatt charging because with a 20 kilowatt hour battery, that would be fantastic. You eat your lunch, your vehicle's charged mm -hmm. again. But in practicality, it's just not going to happen. And I think with the yeah. 4,300 pound weight of this vehicle, which is enormous for a midsize SUV, um, it's not going to be something you buy because it charges fast or because you're looking for good fuel economy after the battery's depleted. With 38 miles of range, which is probably second best of PHEVs after the RAV4 Prime, this is a vehicle you mostly buy because you're trying to replace gasoline and you don't want to go full EV. That's its single biggest strength. It's that 38 mile range and the large-ish battery. Yeah, and when we take a look at it here, like I'm, let me pull this up here because the... Uh... The Sorento is just such a funky thing here. The Sorento plug-in hybrid in prestige trim is 49, 49 grand here. Uh, the Outlander, oh, they don't have pricing available yet on their it website for their 41, 23. 41? Okay. 41. So that's actually pretty, that's quite a bit more expensive than the outgoing model. I'm, I'm a little surprised with that. Um, theoretically, you could get in a Sorento for 49, um, but it's going to be roomier inside. And it's going to have a mechanical all-wheel drive system if you choose the all-wheel drive option. I believe that's uh, still available on the plug-in hybrid. Let me check on that one. This is an interesting vehicle to me. I think maybe it's only interesting to me because I remember like the freewheeling Mitsubishi of the 1990s, back when the stuff they sold in the U.S. was bonkers, and the stuff they didn't sell in the U.S. was even more bonkers. I think that's it's true. 90s nostalgia that draws me to Mitsu, especially since back in 2008 and 2009, I think we all kind of assumed that the Mitsubishi era in the U.S. was kind of over. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Sorento, the Sorento is at least all-wheel drive standard. It's 261. So performance-wise, I wouldn't be surprised if the Sorento was, was actually a little faster than the Outlander. I'm just intrigued that they continued to go this direction rather than bring us the new Nissan plug-in hybrid system, which they've been promising for years and years now, but we still have not seen in reality. I'm a little bit more intrigued by the, the promises that they've made out of that new Nissan system. Unfortunately, they just haven't, haven't delivered it yet. Yeah, it seems like this vehicle was sort of in between generations with uh, mm -hmm. Nissan. It wasn't able to piggyback on the next generation, and that's why it's really pulling forward so much of what Mitsubishi already offered on the previous generation vehicle. So if you're in love with the way it looks and you want to replace gas, it's a solid choice. If you're looking for dynamics, whatever it is on paper, it's not going to go that fast. It's 4,300 yeah. pounds. It weighs as much as like a V8 Challenger, and that's a pretty hefty vehicle for what is a 185-inch long midsize SUV. That would even be compact. That would be compact. Yeah, it's technically compact, supposedly. Yeah. It's on the large side of compact. I am really glad that they kept the third row, though, because that has always been a unique feature, is the ability of the emergency use third row. It's not large. You won't fit adults comfortably back there. Um, but there's child, no child seats either. are going to be a pinch, but you, you can do it if you need to. 
and it folds flat, so it's not like you have to give up storage space. It disappears right. when you need it to disappear. Yep, yep. Okay, so it was a big week for big trucks. We got a look at the, a look, I emphasize, <laughs> the next uh, Ford Super Duty, and we've also got heavy-duty Silverados, and I guess on the Silverado front, we know a little bit more. Uh, we've got powertrains, we've got details about interior upgrades, and I would say the interior is probably the single biggest change. It looks yes. less ugly externally, but inside they're conforming it better to the changes we saw on the half-ton Silverado last year. Right, which was widely expected, and that's exactly what Chevy needed to do, uh, because the interior, let's be frank, in this gen, in the previous generation, half-ton, and the current generation, three-quarter ton, one-ton, it's just been dreadful. Um, especially considering the fact that there are so many consumer purchases of heavy-duty trucks these days in America, uh, which is not how they were intended when originally they were split off from the bunch. Uh, Ford and a lot of companies thought that these would be fleet-only, primarily business customers, etc. But there's a huge portion of, of individual consumers that are buying them because they want to tow a fifth wheel or a gooseneck trailer or something like that. Or they have higher payload and towing needs than you would get in a, in a half-ton truck. Or they just think they're cool, which, you know, it's a thing. Um, the, the Ford setup I'm more intrigued by in a way because Ford is really doubling down on connectivity features, business features, towing features, etc. Whereas the Chevy is a bit more of a, a refresh here and there, a new interior, creature comforts, that sort of thing. Yeah, the Ford is interesting because it uses an all new electrical architecture. The frame and for the most part, the powertrains are what we had before. Mm -hmm. We've got a new 6.8 liter that is based on the 7.3 liter. So if you want gasoline, you've now got two primary engine options. Uh, the power stroke is going to come back. They're saying there's going to be a little bit more power torque. I haven't seen specific figures. Yeah, no power output figures for anything yet. Yeah, and very little details on the Ford front because it is the later breaking of these two news items. I do think the new electrical architecture is interesting because there's everything from the ability to integrate upfit accessories uh, to new trailering options, new trailer security. Uh, there are now remote blind spot sensing features that allow you to use blind spot sensors with your trailer. Uh, they really thought this through. It's mostly a functionality upgrade to the truck mm -hmm. as a whole. Yeah, I'm really intrigued to see exactly how the integration of some of these features go, because this is going to be the first truck that supports trailer 360 camera. This will be a market that, uh, an, uh, sorry, a module that you buy from your Ford dealer. It is then installed and integrated into a specific trailer, obviously. So you have to, you know, have someone, or you could do it yourself, cut holes, run wires, etc., integrated into the trailer itself as is the blind spot monitoring system, because trucks have been able to do blind spot monitoring with conventional trailers as long as their dimensions are within a certain envelope, but not with larger fifth wheel trailers, uh, especially some of the really large ones, just because of their position on the vehicle. So this will do the same thing with that. You'll put radar sensors all around the trailer. They will register with the truck and provide the blind spot monitoring system. Uh, I'm really going to be intrigued to see how well those work. Uh, are they going to be able to get manufacturers that can integrate them from the factory? Because that would be a much better option for people that are buying a new fifth wheel. Um, I'm really intrigued by those options, but also just a tiny bit concerned about that, that integration cost. And they haven't said anything about the cost of the accessories. Um, we're also going to be getting a, a high, high output and a low output version of the diesel V8. Uh, with different turbos, different cooling systems, etc. Uh, they're promising class-leading horsepower and torque, but we don't have any numbers yet. And the only transmission available will be the 10-speed heavy-duty transmission, so no six-speed or anything like that anymore. That seems to be a common thread between both of these new Super Duty for 2,500 and 3,500 mm -hmm. class trucks. Uh, they are trying to limit transmissions used mm -hmm. to just 10-speed options. I don't think you can get a six-speed on either vehicle at this point. Uh, the that's a good question. My recollection is bad on the Chevy side, but I believe that fleet customers could still get the six speed uh, on the base versions. Um, the the ten speed though is a fantastic ten speed, and it, it strikes me funny. This is one of those marketing things. GM wants to say it's an Allison ten speed transmission. It is not an Allison transmission. Sorry, folks. Uh, you know that Allison badge. If you really look at it on the press release statements, they'll say it's Allison validated transmission. That means General Motors makes the transmission. This is actually the same transmission. It's the same 10 speed that Ford and General Motors co-developed together. Uh, it's basically a heavy duty version of the one that's in the uh, the, the 1500 uh, Silverado and Sierra and the F-150. 
beefed up for use in the heavy-duty trucks. And I, I don't quite understand GM's desire to have this Allison logo and pay the licensing uh, for the Allison logo on the trucks when they could just say, hey, you know, it's a GM transmission be because it is. Like, I, I would think they would want to be proud of their engineering ability because it's, it's a fantastic transmission. I think it's just branding, honestly. You look at some of the names associated, Bighorn, Laramie, King mm -hmm. Ranch. We're talking trucks. And trucks are all about image and branding for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's the decision maker in every case, but it's a big deal. These vehicles wouldn't have like six foot tall grills that are full width if like image weren't a thing here. So let's yeah. be honest, it is. I mean, some some of it some of it makes sense, like the Cummins brand badging on ramps that makes sense. But you know, Cummins isn't out there going. You know what? That's an Ison transmission in that one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, Ford Ford's just like we've got a transmission. It's ten speeds done. <laughs> the, the Allison brand, you know, also back when, you know, Isuzu was still designing the Duramaxes, they didn't exactly advertise that either. That's true. That's reason. true. <laughs> know, Duramax by Isuzu. Awesome, man. Cowboy high five. What? Why yeah. not? Why not? Hey. <laughs> but, uh, yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I do think there's a lot of um, lifestyle content mm -hmm. here. We do have these high country and soon uh, we have a ZR2 heavy a super duty coming from GM, which I believe is a first. There's going to be a full ZR2 treatment on yes. the super duty truck it's mm -hmm. going to be um basically a super high-end off-road heavy duty pickup what worked in the colorado what worked in the silverado is now making it to the top of the food chain yeah. this is probably not going to be the ultimate work truck it's going to be a very no. cool off-roaders lifestyle vehicle and, and honestly you can thank ram because they did it with the power wagon and the others realized wow they're selling these things and they're really expensive we need a piece of that pie that's also why the high country option exists. Mm -hmm. If yeah. you want the ugly older interior, there will still be on the Chevy side a work truck and a custom. So if you want the old ugliness, you can still get it yeah. for less money. And I have to say, as far as the interior goes, I think GM is winning this battle. The The Ram has a nice interior, but the problem with Ram's lineup is that the 1500 is fantastic, but they, they really did not do a lot to the 2500 and 3500 of the lineup. They didn't do a complete refresh that has the same old cab. It's got old components grafted into the new dashboard design, older seat frames, so the seats are far less comfortable than the Ram 1500 seats, which is kind of a bummer. And then the drivetrain is starting to feel a little old. It does have the Cummins, which I love, and it sounds great, but it's made into a six-speed transmission, which is now uh, nearly half the number of gears that we find in everybody else. And that may sound like a non-issue for people that are like, well, you know, I had a Ram with three speeds and it was just fine. But when we're talking about a big diesel engine with a relatively narrow power band, because diesels, these big diesels don't rev very high, you need the extra gears and it's going to make a big difference trailering. Yeah. And we do know some details of the upgrades to, on the GM side of the house. The gas powered V8s haven't really changed. We now have an absolutely bonkers a 470 horsepower Duramax that's making, I think, 975 pound feet of torque, which is absolutely mental when you consider. I remember when 400 was like. Was the like, thing? Yeah. Yeah. Like you were talking about a full size 2500, 3500 class mm -hmm. pickup. You get, you know, 150 horsepower from a non turbocharged Cummins diesel back in the 90s and 400 pound feet of torque. Now it's 975. So what does that give you? It gives you a lot. It gives you a ridiculous, I think, 36,000 pounds of towing capacity. Yes, with far more than you can legally use, of course. <laughs> fifth wheel, dually, you know, of mm -hmm. course, all qualifiers present. And you can haul 7,290 pounds of what? I don't know, maybe lead, but you can put it in your truck. Yes. The, the numbers make a lot more sense when you consider that, that these are all medium-duty truck uh, components that are in the medium duty lineup. And this, this naming convention is bonkers, mind you, in America. So for people that are not familiar, we have half ton trucks, the light duty trucks. Then we have the heavy duty trucks, the 2,500 and 3,500. When you go above 3,500, it's a medium duty truck. Don't ask me why these definitions exist, but medium duty or the class four, five, six, seven, and blah, 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 up the up that chart. Those are the F650, 750, blah, blah, blah. Those are the 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 cranes, the you know, the the um, the mining vehicles that have, you know, a dump truck bed in the back. Um, the chassis is for cars. yeah, the chassis is for all sorts of really big heavy duty things, but they're medium duty things. So it's that category that really needs that. So if you're 
if you're doing cross-country specialty vehicle transport and you have a Class A license, obviously, for your business to do this, then you're probably buying one of these medium-duty upfitted trucks because you want the snazzy cabin with the creature comforts, etc. But it's a work truck and you need to tow lots of things, lots of miles, and you need the performance. Yeah, it's it's medium duty by the standards of something that says Freightliner on the front. Yes, <laughs> because it's because it's not in that semi truck category yet. It's that between between category of things that they live in. So now we're also getting some upgrades in the Ford. We have a Pro Trailering Assist, which is mm-hmm. supposed to be able to align with your trailer's gooseneck, uh, which is incredible to me. I, I can't imagine how this thing is going to ma- manage such fine control. But apparently, you no longer need a buddy to line that up. Uh, also, 5G is new. You now have 5G connectivity, and mm-hmm. I think you can attach at least 10 devices in the Ford. So back to that sort of notion that people are going to be using these as personal vehicles. Mm-hmm. If you're setting yourself up solo to trailer a boat or some horses or connect your family at a campsite, you have a lot more uh, approachable options here. You've got the workspace if you want it, if you want to fold flat your console and use it as a desk. Um, you've got uh, no, back- no, 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 no fold flat console, sadly. Nope. Oh dear! No, this is the I, one thing that did not come over for the F from the F one fifty, and it blows my mind. Uh, they thought that the center console was already suitable enough for working, and I thought that's just kind of odd because you got the column shifter up here, so you don't have to have the power folding mechanism for the shifter. Why not just have the fold flat doohickey? Doesn't have it for some reason. Could not get a good explanation on that one. So. That, I think, is a missed opportunity because that would have been really cool for business customers, the people that are buying work trucks, to have that extra workspace. But No, good. Alex Alex with the catch right there. You got a bigger screen, too. If you want a 12-inch screen, Mm -hmm. now available. And you'd be hard-pressed to get a tiny one. And Uh, upfitters will be happy because they'll be able to write apps that will run on the screen and control upfit options in the vehicle. So if you've got, uh, you know, a a bucket truck or a crane truck, etc., you can actually integrate the app into the system if the the manufacturer wants to do this, mind you. And you can turn on and off options using the touchscreen rather than having to drill into the dashboard. So it could represent a a much cleaner look for upfitters that want to spend the money. The uh, the 5G connectivity feature also has a lot of of benefits for fleet customers. So if you manage a fleet of of, uh, trucks or if you you own them, if you own a business, etc. that has a large number of trucks, there'll be things like navigation routing that's trailer aware. So you type in the dimensions of your trailer to make sure that you're going a route that your trailer will fit. Um, there's basically going to be an ADT-like security feature. So if your alarm goes off, you're notified. And the 360-degree camera system is going to take pictures. And then uh, you can also get interior cameras in the cargo areas of trucks. So you can see who's breaking in and who's stealing stuff so you can report. Uh, you can make sure that your fleet's not moving at night. You know, know where your kids are and make sure that the, that the, the truck is not moving at night. So it'll actually disable the ignition so it cannot be started outside of certain windows. Uh, in addition to all the vehicle tracking and other functionality that you typically get with Ford's, uh, Ford's connected services stuff. And I suspect that there will be a pretty good take rate from aftermarket accessories providers looking to integrate into this. Because of the size of the Ford aftermarket, I think this mm-hmm. is going to be uh, very popular. I would also say, realistically, the practical elements that they've added are fantastic, especially the use of hard buttons and physical knobs on the assumption that you might be wearing gloves when you drive this truck. Yes. It's not all luxury, super-duty trucks. There are considerations here for the folks who are going to use it a lot day in and day out and mm-hmm. get it dirty. Yeah. And a lot of practical touches for, for again, for other outfitters, like you know, we've got the onboard 2-kilowatt inverter that's available. Yes. Uh, the onboard scales functionality from F-150 has migrated here as well. So your your employees know how much weight they're putting in the truck. So you can be sure you're in the safety envelope for that truck, which is a really cool feature. And it will also weigh uh, hitches. So you can be sure that your tongue weight is appropriate for your load. That's another really cool touch there. Um, and anybody that uses a PTO for whatever your business does, whether that's a hydraulic pump for something or an air compressor, if you need high volume air output, that kind of thing, uh, that's now going to be standard on all the Super Duty transmissions. Also, handy little side steps so you can access the bed from the side without having to crawl into it. Very cool. Which is important because these are huge. (laughs) They are big vehicles. One feature you mentioned that I wanted to call out is that the GPS can uh, totalize the length of your truck and your trailer. And Mm -hmm. it will tell you where 
the roads are either too constricted, the turns too tight, uh, perhaps the tunnels too narrow uh, to actually drive the truck. It will give you a GPS suggested route that takes your total vehicle length mm -hmm. maneuverability into account. I don't know how they do that, but to me, that's hugely impressive. It also reminds me that Blue Cruise, at least now, is not available. That is true. I am okay with that because Blue Cruise needs way more time in the oven. That brownie is so underdone. Uh, yeah. I have been pretty unhappy with Blue Cruise in the Lightning, to be honest. That um, sounds like a fair decision. It's, uh, yeah, it's it just needs more time. The driver feedback is bad. If you're not looking straight at the road, if you're not staring at the road, then you can't tell when the system has disabled because it's down here. I'm looking up there, the notification's down here. There's no beep or anything. The display just stops being blue, which goes from blue to gray. Doesn't flash, doesn't blink, nothing like that. So you only know that it's off when the car reminds you, put your hands back on the steering wheel because now we've just gone back to regular lane centering. It's really stupid in that that manner. And then sometimes the system will just disengage randomly. So you're going around a corner, you think all is well on the freeway. I've had it do this twice, which is why I don't use it anymore. Uh, it's going around a corner just fine. And then all of a sudden it decides to split from the pack and go do a sharp turn right across multiple lanes of freeway traffic. Yeah. Sudden motions and random disengagement without warning are for me the mortal sins mm -hmm. for like our current generation of yeah. level two autonomy. So yeah, I think there sometimes you're better off just leaving it off. And I actually agree. I think there's Ford. a reason that Super Cruise is more expensive and less available because it seems to be more thoroughly baked and a more complex system. So the the way that it has the flashing lights on the steering wheel, I think is actually a stroke of genius because that's a, a light pretty high and right in your field of vision that's telling you the system's on, it's off, you need to take a, a you know, take over, it blinks at you, etc. That's a much better way of doing it, I think. Um, unfortunately, it is not available in a very large set of vehicles and the availability even in the vehicles it's available in is really low. Like, good luck getting it in a truck. Theoretically, you can. Good luck finding a truck with it on it. Speaking of finding a truck, we've got a rare market report. Uh, a lot of EV pickups on Bring a Trailer. Now, in the past, an F-150, a stock F-150, would not be the kind of enthusiast vehicle that would pop up on a website like Bring a Trailer, which is generally special interest, classic, performance enthusiast vehicles. But we have some reasonable pricing history now for Rivian, the GMC Hummer EV, and the F-150 Lightning. What's interesting to me is that these F-150 Lightnings, Lariats, Platinum so far, they're not going for the bonkers money I expected. The last three sales were 82000 88000 and 88000 Those were all Lariat. Mm -hmm. I expected more at this point with current availability and the market we've got. I am surprised by that a little too, but only because I think that... Um... That's it's a supply and demand thing in essence. Ford has built more of them really already than Rivian has, so there's a a bit more availability, as you if you will. Um, we also don't know how many owners had to sign, um, you know, stop this, the agreements that said you can't resell it in a year. I'm guessing not very many because we are seeing them transact around like this. Um, and it does not appear that the massive price hikes on the Lightning has caused that to, to go up at any amount there. Do remember, though, that, of course, the true sales price of this is going to be 4 to 5% higher because Bring a Trailer charges the buyer a fee. And it's also important to remember that of those three $88,000 or $80,000 range F-150s in Lariat trim, uh, two of them were bid to, which means the reserve was not met. Though the last one that was sold, sold for $88,926.22, uh, that was another Lariat. That did sell at that price. I'm actually surprised that there are only eight vehicles in the sales history on Bring a Trailer because I would have thought as mm -hmm. the most prolific of the production of EV pickups, there would be the most F-150 Lightnings listed, either bid to or sold. We've actually yeah. got more Hummer EVs. And let me double check, but I think we also have more Rivians. Yeah, we do. We have one yeah. more Rivian. Um, and for, uh, for comparison, on cars and bids, an F-150 Lightning Lariat uh, with 300 miles just went on the 22nd of September for $100,500.
that genuinely shocks me first because it's so much more than bring a trailer second because it's mm -hmm. cars and bids which is kind of like kind of like it's very yeah it's very hit and miss so like if we look at the current three auctions that are still going uh one has two days left it's already bid up to 103 it's a platinum though uh and then on the recently ended auctions here these are all over the map uh so there's a lariat 86,000. Uh, there's a Lariat 80,000 did not meet the reserve, Lariat 78 didn't meet the reserve, 82 uh, didn't meet the reserve, but 92,000, that met the reserve and was sold. One for 90,000, one for 97, one for $111,000 just a few weeks ago. And of the Bring a Trailer Platinums that, that were bid or sold, not one of them was bid or sold for less than $112,000. But still, when I think about how you can option up a platinum, you can hit $100,000 at the dealer before adding yes. too many accessories. You can do this with options. and For 2023, yeah. Yeah, so I'm a little bit surprised that the prices aren't higher given the premium being paid for the Hummer. Mm -hmm. I will say this, though. Prior <laughs> to July, every single GMC Hummer EV that auctioned on Bring a Trailer was sold for over $208,000. The most was $275,000 for the first one that sold back in April. But before July, not yeah. one of these sold for less than $208,000. Since July, not one of them has sold for over $200,000. And the last two mm -hmm. went for one seventy-five and one eighty-one. I'm not going to say the market is coming down, but $275,000, $225,000 down to $180,000, $175,000, that's definitely a decline. Yeah, it was always bonkers. Let's be honest for the Hummer. It, that never made sense to me. But again, I think it's a supply and demand thing because so few Hummer EVs have been built relative to the Lightning, which is they're actually trying to crank out as many as they possibly can. Ford seems really committed to building as many as they can get batteries for. They're just trying to pop them out left and right. Same thing with the Mach-E. They're really trying to sell a lot of them. Um, now, obviously, they're not selling as many as Tesla is selling because they don't have that kind of battery availability, but uh, but they're definitely trying to push them out the door. Uh, Rivian's had, relatively speaking, more production problems, even though they, they had a, a head start as far as the pre-order and the, the vehicle theoretically existing, uh, but they've just had a horrible time getting everything up and running. What surprises me is that with the Rivian, they're selling in a relatively narrow range between mm -hmm. about $100,000 and $120,000. There are no Hummer-style $150,000, dollars $200,000 bids on these, and there have not been a whole lot of results, only nine results. There are no trucks currently offered, which genuinely surprises me. The Rivian, if you were to go to a dealer and buy it with broad options selected, it wouldn't be too hard to get it up to $100,000, $105,000. So I'm surprised that the sale price on Bring a Trailer is only slightly above the price of buying one new. I would have thought with the weight involved and the slow ramp, right. there'd be large premium, especially given the performance that it offers, which is considerably more than the Ford True. and competitive with the Hummer. Yeah, I think that Rivian, just as a new player, there's just a little, little bit less interest there. Um, I think that the Lightning arriving took a lot of wind out of Rivian sales. Right now, there are two available on cars and bids. Uh, both are currently at $90,000, and the most recent sales have ranged from one hundred one dollars to uh, $90,400. Yeah, which is about what it costs new, what it costs new if you yeah. buy it now. And that does shock me because I thought it would mm -hmm. be a lot more. Um, so... Yeah. Faraday Future, uh, buy or sell. The FF91 Futurist <laughs> is rated at 381 miles of range. They will need money to get it to production. Is this at least yes. encouraging? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, that, that whole Faraday Future thing seems to be such a rolling disaster. I'm not clear what to think. Um, I'm guessing that my well let me say i my recommendation to anybody that's asking and may have a deposit on something get your money back because if things go to bankruptcy court you're not going to get your money back the creditors will get it first deposit holders will be last get your money back now um if they actually start shipping cars you can always reorder one <laughs> i think that the deposit they take is really low relative to the price of the vehicle like mm -hmm. i, I I think it's almost like some pitiful amount of money, like fifteen hundred or twenty five hundred. I think it's 
it's really tiny so that they can say they have deposits and like this is a pitch yeah. they can give to investors. Um, so yeah, you could lose that relatively small amount of money. I would rather have it than lose it. But the stakes seem fairly low for most Faraday deposit holders at the moment. Also, this thing gets more expensive and later breaking every time they talk about it. I'm amazed the whole thing is still going. Like, it's like a zombie. You're like, how in God's name is it still walking? I don't know how this company still exists. Yeah, apparently here the uh, the Faraday future in February, only 300 of the 14,000 pre-orders actually paid their deposit fee. Does it mention what the deposit fee was? It does not say what it is. It just says the other $14,000, other 14,000 orders are uh, just bookings with no payments made. Oh, okay. So I don't think a whole lot of people have exposure to this, but I actually agree mm. with Alex. 1500 bucks is like a nice like weekend away. Uh, let me see if I can find the deposit. I really do the think... Current, the current deposit is $1,500 for the Futurist, 5000 for the Futurist Alliance. Okay, the Futurist Alliance, I believe, is the one that... I think it was the one that was rated. It's their most expensive. It's yes. somewhere between 180 and like $210,000, depending on who you ask and on what day and what mood they're in. Yes. Um, yeah, I would just avoid this. They do not have the money for production engineering. And if there's one lesson we've learned from watching all of these new automakers set up shop over the last decade, it's yeah. that building a production line can easily cost you a billion dollars. And that's if you Definitely. don't use pilot tools. If yes. you just build the production line and you equip it with the tools and robots and jigs that are going to build the production vehicle, you don't do the dry run stuff. It's still a billion bucks. I cannot see this happening. Yeah, I'm. my guess is that someone will need to buy them, or maybe they'll need to merge with someone to try and, and make this work. Uh, they're already a public company, so they could try selling more stock, maybe to try and raise some additional capital, but their stock isn't worth a lot, so I don't know how that would work. Here's the other thing, too. <laughs> I think the window is closing for these EV brands that launch mm -hmm. with a mega product and then try to move down market. Like I think at this point with companies like Rivian and Lucid launching vehicles that are comparably priced to like gas powered mm -hmm. equivalents, uh, the, the door and, and Tesla being well established in the market, Polestar is coming online. It's not acceptable anymore to offer this ultra low volume, unprofitable halo vehicle with no mainstream yes. products to follow for half a decade or a decade. I think that was great mm -hmm. with Elon Musk, but he launched at a great time. 2012 was the beginning of a decade long bull run for luxury products and financial markets, equities, everything. Um, I think launching into this market with a super luxury halo product only and no follow on business case is impossible. I don't think there's a next chapter for that kind of business plan. I think it would be fine if it was priced and functioned that high, but the problem it kind of is what 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 more can they do for the price of a Tesla Model S Plaid, which is oddly well-priced when you consider how much a Porsche Taycan costs, for instance. So it's going to be really difficult to, in the EV space, to say, you know, we have the ultimate whatever with 1500 horsepower and zero to 60 in 2.1 seconds or whatever, when you could just go get a Model S Plaid and you know, pay only a hundred something thousand. So that is a, a really difficult thing for some of these startup companies uh, where they've, I think, honestly been a little squeezed by Tesla in, in that way. Um, Lucid, I wonder how long Lucid's really gonna be around too, because they're also focusing on this very expensive set of the market. But then at the same time, there is more profit to be made here than there is on say a Fisker pair yeah. um, or a Fisker Ocean, because those are a lot less expensive. So I would assume that Fisker is definitely in the category of will they make it or will they not make it? Um, companies like Polestar, they have the benefit of being backed by very profitable multinational parents. So you know, it doesn't matter that. whether Polestar makes money or not. Who cares? The other thing, too, is that and I hate to say this, but sometimes if you've got an amazing looking prototype, these independent auto projects can drag on far longer than reason and finances dictate. Mm -hmm. Every time John DeLorean <laughs> came into the room and pulled the sheet off that Jujero prototype, people went nuts. British government, you know, dealers, people who wanted to line up to sell it, people who wanted to line up to buy it. And the same thing was true with Fisker. Nothing made sense behind the scenes and the ability wasn't there. 
But every time they looked at the product, people willing to write a check with a deposit or investment mm -hmm. of the government, they're like, oh my God, the way it looks. Faraday Futures FF91 is this weird rolling monospace living, like living room on wheels. Yeah. It's not sexy. It's not exciting. It's not cool compared to what Tesla and Lucid are making. And it's not truck enough to excite like the Hummer EV type. Right. Of the back seats look really comfy, though. Chinese market? I would say probably. Anybody that wants to get driven in a car, it looks really cool. Um, but yeah, who, who else does it look cool to? I, that I don't know. Uh, it's got LCDs everywhere. It's got LCDs in the doors and the dash. Uh, um, they're always showing the loungy concept of the rear where you can almost fully recline the seat into a lay flat bed-like structure. Um, definitely cool, but um, what's the market? I, that I don't know. I don't know. I will say this, from markets to black markets, California recently, and I think this is our capstone topic for the show, but California recently passed a law making it difficult to buy and sell stolen catalytic converters and their constituent mm -hmm. parts. Quick backtrack, guys. This is one of the strangest outgrowths of the pandemic. We've seen the rise of weird chaos factors whose link to the pandemic is is unclear, but whose connection is obvious. I don't know if that makes sense, but things like road deaths and, and traffic chaos and people speeding and driving dangerously. Well, catalytic converter theft is also one of those things that just skyrocketed, going from a weird niche that we thought was confined to previous eras to 65,398 catalytic converter thefts in 2021. How much of a rise is that? Well, in 2019, only 3,300 were reported stolen. So this is the biggest market for cars taking the biggest step to halt catalytic converter theft. Does it matter? Will it make a difference? Is it too interstate? I'm I'm curious as to see. I mean, California is pretty big, so there's definitely a laziness factor in trying to truck them out of California to try and sell them. That is a concern and would be a concern in in uh, some of the areas close to, say, Arizona or something like that. Um, but uh, I would assume there'd be better low-hanging fruit for theft than, than, than not, because it does take a while to get out, and you've consumed some of your profits uh, in trying to truck them around and, and risked, of course, being stopped with, <clears throat> with a box truck full of, you know, Toyota Prius catalytic converters. Um, so I'm going to be interested to see if other states adopt this, especially if California can convince neighboring states that they need to jump on board, especially Arizona and Nevada would be the two big ones that would help a lot. Um, so we'll, only time will tell uh, as to whether or not this will help. Basically, it causes the, the recycler, recyclers to have to actually see who they're getting these things from, keep records, uh, VIN numbers, etc. Make sure that things are tracked. They can't just give you cash in the back door anymore. And the fines are pretty steep for the recyclers if they don't. So the first offense is $1,500. The next offense is $4,000 and the possible suspension of your recycler's license. Then uh, the third offense is basically like you're closed. So um, it's it's definitely seems like the recyclers are going to start taking the records. Will that make a dent in the actual thefts? We don't know. Well, it's, you got to admit, it's always been sketchy that yeah. dude pulls up in a Honda Accord and is like, I have these um, eight catalytic converters from these cars I've found in my yard, and uh, just how much could I get for them? Yeah, these fell off on the side of the highway. This mm -hmm. is totally legit. I want cash on the yeah, spot. No exactly, name, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I don't, my, I'm, my, I'm between bank accounts now. Please give me cash. <laughs> It's not a coincidence, though, that Alex mentioned the Prius, because the 2004 to 2009 second-gen Prius, that's quite a haul. You could make off with a 1000 bucks uh, based on what is in the catalytic converters, mm -hmm. mostly platinum family materials like platinum, palladium, and rhodium. And I talked about the pandemic somehow having a relation to all of these chaos factors. This one's pretty straightforward. The price of rhodium jumped from about 700 bucks in 2016 to currently about 14,000 plus. It was at a high yeah. of almost $22,000 per ounce back in 2021. So just as supply chain scarcity mm -hmm. of manufactured components has raised prices and reduced availability, raw materials are also highly sought. And that is also a flourishing market. Indeed. You have them. Yep. 
And uh, so that's, I mean, that's, that's the entire origin of it was just it started being worth something. Um, and people weren't asking questions. So hopefully asking questions will at least help. Um, but we're probably at least a year away from knowing whether it actually did anything or not. Well, the most practical solution to this problem, of course, is to go lay down a $5,000 deposit on a Faraday Future FF91 Futurist Alliance. No catalytic converter. That's probably true. No, no catalytic converter. Or get a diesel. No catalytic converter there either. They're not stealing, they're not stealing the soot traps. So. <laughs> all right. Well, now that we've solved that problem, Alex, where can they find us online? They can find us at all of your favorite podcast locations. Of course, if you're listening to the podcast, be sure and check out the video because there will be pictures of the random things that we're talking about on the video so you can actually see what a Faraday future looks like, especially that really funky back seat. Uh, and of course, you can find us on the Alex and Autos video channel, the EV Buyer's Guide video channel, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all of those social places. Toodaloo, guys. Bye. Bye.